Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see the church so full and a lot of people outside as well. Uh, Ms. Rani and I were joking that it's normally only this full when G is preaching. So uh, if you've come here under false pretenses, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, no, but it's a wonderful problem to have as, uh, as we continue to try and raise funds to purchase property and build a building. Let me just encourage you to give towards that. And it's a large amount, so I, it's easy to think, well, there's no point in me giving my small amount to that, but that's, that would be a wrong way to think of it. Um, let's continue to pray and give and trust the Lord so that we can reach more and more people and see uh, God's kingdom grow. Well, one of you have ever had the experience of uh, eating a delicious meal where sort of every bite is, is better than the previous one. And, uh, you know, you're just savoring every moment. And I like to mix my, you know, vegetables and meat and everything together and, and enjoy the flavors together. Some people like to eat separately. But you just, for me, mixing it all together and all the different flavors and I'm enjoying it. And I'm about two-thirds of the way through the meal and I find a hair. Uh, ever had that experience? Um, now, it's okay if you, you know, you're at home and it's a family-cooked meal. But when you're at a restaurant, it's a little bit different. Uh, you wonder, where did this hair come from? But it, it does leave sort of a, a, a horrible taste in your mouth. And that's really what we're going to find in this passage, that there is so much good, and the chronicler is really... Um, showing us the blessing of God on Solomon. But in the midst of it, there's some very disturbing things. Uh, and we, we trust the Lord that we'll learn some lessons uh, from Solomon's example, from Solomon's life. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. So we're going to look at chapters 7 through 9 this morning, Lord willing. You can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 11. So if you were here last week, you remember that we looked at the first 10 verses uh, last week of chapter 7. We finished off there. Just to give you some of the background, if you weren't here last week, we saw the dedication of the temple. So Solomon has completed the building of the temple, the one that David had planned and had prepared for, but Solomon is the one that God ordained to build it. And he, uh, he completed it, and it was beautiful and glorious, and there's this uh, wonderful display of God's presence and Solomon's prayer to the Lord, uh, which really focused on, on God's love and also on confession of sin, understanding that if God's people would confess their sin, that God would forgive them. And you can see this in verse 11, that everything has been finished. It says there, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and the king's house, he also built a house for himself. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him. And so this is the second visitation by the Lord to Solomon. So quite remarkable that Solomon gets these two visitations from the Lord. Remember the, the first one was when he's just become king and the Lord appears to him and says, you know, what, what would you like? And you remember he has this wonderful response. He prays for wisdom. And the Lord says, because you prayed for wisdom, I'm going to give you all these other things as well. Now the Lord appears to him a second time. And he says to him, I have heard your prayer. That's the prayer of dedication to the, when, they, when he dedicated the temple. And the Lord says, I have chosen this place, Jerusalem and the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And that's what Solomon had prayed. Solomon had asked the Lord, Lord, when we when you punish us for our sin, 
if we cry out to you, if we repent, if we ask for forgiveness, please hear from heaven. And the Lord is saying, I will do that. He says, I, when I do this, when I shut up the heavens, I stop the rain, I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. And the first thing I want you to notice is those things come from God. Okay. Uh, often Christians try and think they're sort of protecting God. They say, you know, bad things come not from God, but from the devil or something else. They try and explain it away. The Bible is very clear. Uh, disasters come from God. There's nothing that happens outside of his control or outside of his ordination of it happening. He is absolutely sovereign. Amos 3 uh, says this, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Uh, God is, is the one who brings about disaster. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, maybe that's a bit disconcerting for you, but think of the, the opposite. Okay, what are the other options? Well, the other option is the devil's just doing stuff and God's not stopping him. Okay? To me, that's far more distressing. Okay? To serve an impotent God who is not in control and you know, the devil and human beings are just doing a whole lot of things and you know, God is helpless. He's really, he wants to help us, but he can't. He doesn't have the power. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is absolutely in control and is omnipotent. He has all power and authority and he does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth. And so here it is very clear, God is sovereign. He is in total control. And then verse 14, probably when I started to read it, many of you will know this verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so uh, many times in South Africa, I don't know if it happens elsewhere in the world, but at least in South African Christian circles, uh, this verse is a common verse. People will say we're having a, a, a day of prayer, or we're having a men's rally, or we're doing this, and the focus is this verse. We're going to cry out to God that he would heal our land. And let me say up front, it's a good thing to pray. Okay. It is right for us to pray for our country. It is right to us to pray for our leaders. We are commanded to do that. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for those in authority. And you'll know if you, if you, if you attend or you're a member that every Lord's Day we pray for a different minister in our parliament. We pray for our parliament because we are commanded to by God. It is right to pray for our leaders. But there is a, a problem here if you take this verse and apply it to South Africa. And so part of preaching is teaching. And so I want to use, take this as a teaching moment just to help us a little bit with reading the Bible and understanding God's word and applying it correctly. And so theologians uh, call this hermeneutics. Okay, hermeneutics are the principles of interpretation. How do we read the scriptures? And we apply hermeneutics all the time. All of us have a hermeneutic. Maybe you've never heard of the word, but it's still true. You, you always use it. Uh, you read, when you read the newspaper, when you read the comics, you'll read the comics differently to uh, a, a, an historical account. You'll read satire differently. We do it automatically, and we need to do it with the Bible. The Bible's far more sophisticated than, uh, than any other book. And it also has two covenants, so uh, it makes it more complex because we live on this side of Christ, they lived on that side of Christ. How do we apply it to ourselves? So let's, let's jump in. The first thing you want to do when you read Scripture is, is understand the original audience. Okay? Remember that Second Chronicles was not written to you or to me. Uh, it's not a letter to the people in Johannesburg. It's not written for us, but it is, it's not, sorry, it's not written to us, but it is for us. God's word is for all of his people, but it's not written directly to us. It was for the people at that time. So the first work that you want to do is, is try and understand, okay, who was the original audience? Who were the first people that this was read to or written to? And that is the children of Israel. So before Christ came, those who lived under the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, and they had come out of exile in Babylon. 
Okay, so they had um, been judged by God, by the Babylonians, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and they'd been taken exile into Babylon. But God had raised up a deliverer in the form of a man called Cyrus. He was the Medo-Persian Empire, and now they could come back. But the people were very discouraged because everything was destroyed, and so the chronicler is writing to encourage them. Okay, so that's who it's written to, the nation of Israel. So the my people, if my people, the my people in this context is the nation of Israel at that time. In the old covenant, they were the people of God. They were the nation, they were the group that was in covenant with God. And they were a nation. In the new covenant, there is no longer any special nation. The people of God are the church, made up of all different nationalities and ethnicities and spread throughout the world. We are not a political entity. So it is wrong to say, well, let's apply this to South Africa. South Africa is not the people of God. Okay. We're not coming to pray and say, Lord, you know, we're your people. We're going to repent and we want you to heal our land. That's n- it does not have application to that. Unfortunately, throughout history, certain nationalities have seen themselves as the pe- special people of God. Okay. And that's wrong. There is no more Christian nation. There are no more, uh, you know, uh, a country might have a lot of, a lot of um, Christian beliefs and maybe the majority of the population may claim to be Christian. Always read those statistics with a pinch of salt, okay? When you read a country is 80% Christian, uh, don't just take it. What that means is 80% of the population are claiming to be Christian. What you really want to better way of thinking thinking about it is how many disciples of Jesus Christ are there? How many people who actually follow Christ uh, live out his truths and principles in life? How many of them are there in that country? But there are no more Christian nations. Now what does this mean then? Does it apply to us at all? Does it have any application to us? Yes, it does. Uh, One principle would be that uh, as we saw last time, to repent corporately, that God may, may judge a church because they are. Uh, go and read Revelation. Revelation is a letter to the seven churches. Okay. And, and uh, many of those churches were not obeying the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to judge you. And God will do certain things to churches. Eventually, he will even cut off a church so that, so that you know, it might have the name church outside, but it is no longer a church. Because it does not belong to, to God. So God may judge a church because of unrepentant sin, not dealing with unrepentant leaders, allowing false teaching in. That would be a judgment from God, and we are to cry out to God to have mercy, and we are to deal with that. So that's an application that God would be merciful to, to his, his church. Another way to look at it is, eschatologically, that it points us to the end. So the principle of land in the Old Testament, so the nation of Israel had their land that was given to them by God, becomes in the New Testament the new heaven and new earth. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. He doesn't say the meek will inherit the land of Canaan, or what we'd call Israel now, or some people call Palestine, or anything like that. He doesn't say that. He says the meek will inherit the whole earth. So those that belong to God ultimately will inherit the new heaven and new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, there will be no famine, no pestilence, no diseases. So when you read scripture, make sure that you do that work. Make sure that you understand the original audience. Who is it written to? How do we apply it to ourselves? We are the new covenant community. So the principles apply to us as God's people, not to the nation of South Africa. Having said all of that, let me encourage you to keep praying for our leaders and for our country that God would be merciful, but really to pray that he would save people. But we are not as a nation or any country are not the people of of God. The church is the people of God. 
Verse 15, the Lord continues, he says, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Now remember, the original audience, uh, they have been conquered by the Babylonians and now they're under the rule of the Medes and the Persians. They do not have a king. There is no Davidic king on the throne anymore. But God has preserved the Davidic line. And ultimately, that is going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this was to encourage that initial audience. God will fulfill his promise. That he will keep the Davidic line going. That there is a king coming. It was there to encourage them. But there is a warning in verse 19. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this disaster on them. This verse, or these verses, actually really set the tone for the rest of Second Chronicles. The rest of Second Chronicles will, uh, gives us an account of all the different kings of Judah. And it really shows us this idea of retribution, because that's what we see here. The Lord is saying, if you obey me, I will bless you. And I will keep you. But if you disobey me, I will judge you. And ultimately, I will pluck you up out of the land and I'll cast you away. And this house will be destroyed. And everyone, it will become a proverb. People will look at it, the the ruins and the destruction. And I'll say, what happened here? And they'll say, it's because they went after other gods. And you can even see that in the the history of the church at times. The church doesn't exist in, in places where it used to exist. Why is that? Because they allowed false teaching in and began to follow other gods, false gods, and God judged them and cut them off and destroyed the church in those, those areas. And so it's a warning to us again, as we saw right at the beginning, if you remember the very first session on First Chronicles, this idea of retribution. God judges. Don't think you get away with your sin. God will judge it. But at the same time, God will honor and reward obedience. And so there's encouragement to obey the Lord. We come then to chapter 8. And now we see the blessings on Solomon. God promised blessing on on Solomon. 2 Chronicles 8 verse 3. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and took it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities that he built in Hamath. He also built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Balath, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Now, I'm sure those names don't mean much to you. Uh, They don't mean much to me either. I just read what the clever people say. And uh, they said... That these symbolize, well, these cities are sort of the extreme cities of the land of Israel. So what it's telling us is that under Solomon's reign, Israel reached its furthest borders. It's a sign of God's blessing on Solomon. Israel is at its greatest limits. Okay? The land that was promised to them. Under Solomon, they, they get this land. And also, some of these cities refer to the trade routes. So there's a reason that Israel is such an important piece of real estate. 
It's because it's on a str strategic route between north and south and east and west. And maybe you wondered, you know, why is it that just such a small piece of land is, is always in the news? Okay, why is it always there? Because it's so strategic. Uh, it's so important. And so this passage is telling us Solomon also begins to control the trade routes, which is how he becomes fabulously wealthy. Because any trade between the south, between Egypt and Syria and any of the nations further north and uh, uh, east and west have to pass through Israel and they can charge tariffs for that. You know, toll gates. Okay? South Africa didn't invent toll gates. Uh, we just perfected it. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, that's, how, that's what's going on here. That's what the author is saying. He's saying God has blessing Solomon. And it was an encouragement to the the, the original audience, this is what you can be once again. You are God's people. There is hope. There is a future. Verses 7 to 10 show us subjugation of remaining enemies. If you read the book of Judges and Joshua and Judges, how the, the Israelites go and conquer the land of Canaan, but they don't always deal with the, the enemies uh, who live there. But here under Solomon, he subjugates the, those that still remain. It's a sign of God's blessing that they're in complete control. Verses 12 through 15 show us the temple functioning properly. Tells us about the sacrifices and the feasts and the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers. It's again showing us that under Solomon, everything is working as it should be working. Everything is flourishing. The economy is flourishing. Uh, true religion is flourishing. Continues and tells us that uh, he, verse 17, he goes down to Ezion Geber and Eloth on the shore of the sea. That's the Red Sea. So that's, that's that sea that's between Africa and Arabia. And Hiram, Hiram was the king of Tyre who helped him. And so they build these ships and they go out on the sea and they get gold. They go to Ophir. We don't know where Ophir is. Uh, today there's lots of speculation, could be somewhere in Africa, could be India, we don't know. But anyway, they get gold, 450 talents of gold. It's a massive amount of, of gold. Again, it's showing us the growth of the economy and the tremendous wealth. And also that Solomon has good relationships with his Gentile neighbors. Again, the original, original audience does not yet have that. They're afraid of their Gentile neighbors. And this would be an encouragement to say, God can undertake in that area. God can give you peace. So really what the chronicler is doing is showing us God's blessing. And it's there to motivate and encourage the original audience. To say, rebuild the temple. Practice sacrifices. Trust God. Have confidence in the Davidic line. We come then to chapter 9, and one of the most well-known stories from the Old Testament. Look at verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Having a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And so this queen of Sheba, uh, Sheba is uh, modern-day Yemen and Djibouti and Ethiopia. That was part of this, what is known as the Sabian Empire. And so she was queen of this, this empire, the Sabian Empire, very powerful, very wealthy empire. In fact, the Sabians are mentioned in the book of Job. They're one of the, the nations that comes and steals from Job, conquers uh, or, or, or takes some of his, his things. Job is written, it occurs hundreds and hundreds of years before this, but the Sabians at this time are a well-developed empire. And so this lady, who would have been incredibly powerful and wealthy from, from archaeological reports, she comes, she hears of the greatness of Solomon. And she's a Gentile. They were not, she was not a believer at this time. She comes because she wants to hear. She wants to meet him. She wants to see it. And so she comes to Solomon. 
and she comes to test him with hard questions. So she has questions that she wants answered. And she comes to Solomon, and we're told in verse 2, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. Remember, we've, we've seen that Solomon is, is incredibly wise. Apart from Jesus Christ, the wisest man who, who lived, we're told. He has tremendous understanding. He's the one who gives us most of the Proverbs on how to live in this, in this world. And so he answers her. The chronicler is showing her the wisdom of the Davidic line, pointing us to someone wiser. Verse 3, And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. He took her breath away. Okay. <laughs> Some of you brothers are thinking, how can I take her breath away? <laughs> it's very easy. Uh, you need to have the wisdom of Solomon a house that he built, uh, delicious food. But she's, she's amazed by what she sees. It's an account of a Gentile ruler coming to the son of David for wisdom. Okay. We see this even with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the, right, right at his birth even, we see these wise men pagans coming to to Christ giving him gold and uh, gifts precious gifts uh, we see what it's pointing us to is Christ Christ is is greater than all he is the wisest of all the Lord Jesus himself refers to this account in Luke and Matthew that it's recorded Luke 11 verse 31 it says the, Jesus says this, he says, The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus is saying, she was willing to travel, it's about uh, over a thousand miles, so nearly it's 1,200 miles, nearly 2,000 kilometers. She traveled to see Solomon. And Jesus comes to his own people. They don't even have to travel far to see him. He's right there in their midst. He came to his own and his own received him not. But notice what Jesus is saying, that he is a greater than Solomon. Because Christ is not just wise, he is wisdom. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God personified. Maybe you're here and you do have lots of questions. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Come to Christ. He has all those answers. God's word has all of those answers. There is meaning and purpose to life. There is direction. You were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But the real question you should be asking, this, to me this is one of the, the greatest defenses of Christianity. It separates Christianity from all other religions. The real question you should be asking, the real thing that should keep you awake at night is, how can I, a sinner, be right with God? Maybe you don't even think about that. You should. That's the biggest thing you should be thinking about. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you are sinful. You are not a law keeper. You break commandments. You don't even keep your own standards, never mind God's standards. And so you have guilt and you have shame. And you try and suppress it with all sorts of things, but it's there. 
So how on earth can you be right with God? Now, every other religion, and false Christianity included, will say, you need to do a few things. You need to do some works. Uh, Come to church, tithe, say certain things, dress a certain way. Other religions will have different things that you have to do. Um, Sometimes they'll plead the character of their God uh, to say that's why, why you can be accepted, because of the character of their God. But let me say this to you. A God who does not take sin seriously is a small God. Not a great God. A God that just overlooks it and sweeps it under the carpet is not a just God. No other religion deals with sin properly. Even if they say you have to give all your money. Well, I was trying to think of an illustration. You know, what would you think of a, in the ancient world, a monarch um, who, you know, if people, if people did something to, the, to that monarch, if they spat at him or they um, kicked him or did something like that, who, who simply said, you know, the punishment was, you have to mow my lawn, okay, for example. Okay. That was the punishment. If you went and punched the monarch, the punishment was, you have to mow the lawn. Well, we would say, well, that's not a very great monarch, okay? Isn't that right? You'd say the greater the monarch, the more serious the punishment for any offense And so it is with God. Any God who says there's not a big deal, it's not not going to cost you your life, is a small God who does not have a sense of justice. But in Christianity, our God is infinite and glorious, and all sin is against His person, and all sin demands infinite justice and infinite punishment eternal death. That's how great our God is. Okay. And so our God says the only way you can be made right is not by giving all your money, sacrificing your children. That's, that's what false religions have done. It's not by, um, you know, staying single your whole life or uh, working in the church or working in the building or any of those things that religions call for or visiting a holy place, or anything like that, the Lord says, you cannot pay it. It is so great, your offense. The only way you can go free is if I pay it myself. That's the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. That's what it says here. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. If it's foolishness to you, you don't understand it. It's right there. then you should get on your knees and say, God, give me understanding. Help me. Help me to understand this. Christ took the place of sinners to atone the wrath of God that we deserved. Solomon is a pale imitation, points us to the true wisdom, to Jesus Christ. And you and I must be like the Queen of Sheba. Seek him out. If you seek, you will find. And this is to believers as well. Every day, seek the Lord. Our hearts are prone to wonder. We drift away from him. Seek him out every day. Bring your hard questions to him. Bring everything to him. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And he will satisfy you. And so it's, as we, if we just took it there, we'd say what a beautiful picture. God has blessed Solomon. This is glorious. But then we find a hair, okay? And we find that there's some problems here. Now let me just tell you, the chronicler's main motive is to show the glory of Solomon and how great the kingdom was. But he puts little things in the text that should cause us concern. And then at the end, he tells us that everything else about Solomon is written in the other books. And really the other book is Kings. And so he expects his readers to read Kings. And Kings is a lot more clear about how bad Solomon was as well. Well, I want to read a passage from Deuteronomy before we look at the the problems. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It's 
So this is the law given to Moses by the Lord. And he says this, he says to, to Israel, he says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the monarch, monarchy was not something unexpected. God had uh, put uh, laws in place for it. It was expected that the monarchy would develop at some point in Israel. And then he says this, verse 16, Only he, that's the king, must do certain things. Number one, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon breaks every one of those commands. Go to chapter 8, verse 11, 2 Chronicles 8, verse 11. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So already we see a problem. He's marrying uh, a pagan. And remember in Scripture, it's not the ethnicity of a person. That's not the problem. It's whether the person's a believer. That's, That's the principle throughout Scripture. There were people from all nations who became Jews. It's always the principle of marry a believer. Marry a believer. Here, this is is a marriage of convenience. It's a political marriage. It's to build relationships with with leaders. You know that Solomon takes 700 wives, ultimately, and 300 concubines. Now, whatever many wives means, that is too many, okay? (laughs) Uh, You can argue about what does the many mean, but... 700 is, I'm pretty sure, the, you know, Deuteronomy didn't mean <laughs> that much. So he takes her, and notice what he says. He says, I'm not going to let her live here. Now, if you understand a map of, of the building, the temple was, Solomon's house was connected directly to the temple. He had his own entrance to the temple. And then he, he built these other halls, a hall of shields and a throne room, and they were all part of this complex, Okay. He says, my wife can't stay here. Why? Because these things are holy. She's not a believer. He ends up building houses for all his wives who are not believers, and he even surrounds Jerusalem with temples to their gods and goddesses. So this warning, what can you learn from this? Number one, not many wives, okay, uh, as believers, one husband, one wife, okay. Secondly, marry a believer, okay. We can't see people's hearts, can't see perfectly into people's hearts, so we look externally. So what does it mean? It means find someone who is a member, a member in good standing of a faithful church, Okay. Not someone who says, I'm a Christian, they go to church every now and then, if they're not cycling or whatever. Uh, They they are part of a church and they're in good standing. Other people know them and can vouch for them and can say, yes, from what we can see, this person loves the Lord. And it's a faithful church. It's not a cult. And make sure it's in the light because it's, it's... it's through relationships. We go and listen to the Song of Solomon series. It's to get to know the person. Who are their friends? What church are they part of? Those are all criti- critical things. And we make decisions based on, on that. Solomon doesn't do that. 
And I think Song of Solomon is his, at the end of his life, regretting and saying, this is what should have been. What about horses? Jump down to Second Chronicles 9, verse 25. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Verse 28, and horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. What did Deuteronomy say? Don't get horses from Egypt. Don't have too many horses. Now, why would the Bible say that? What's wrong with horses? They're beautiful. But why not too many horses? Well, because it was the army. The cavalry, it was the more horses you had, the greater your, your military might. The Lord is saying, that's not where your confidence should be. Remember, the Lord is saying, I fight for Israel. Okay? He is the divine warrior. How often in Scripture, God will just intervene and destroy the enemies. Israel won't even have to do things. Okay? That's the idea, that you trust me. What's the application to us? He's not trusting God. He's putting trust in his military might. We can do that. We can put trust in, in our physical strength to just make it a crass one-for-one -one application. You can just put strength in your physical might. I can handle myself in any situation. <laughs> no, you can't. You know, a little piece of lead flying at the speed of sound can sort of end that pretty quickly. Put your confidence in your in your security system, it's not wrong to have security systems, not wrong to be prepared, none of those things, but your ultimate confidence must be in the Lord. Lord, you're sovereign. I'm going to be wise, but I trust you ultimately. I don't have to live in panic and fear. It's not right for Christians to live with panic and anxiety. It's a sin. It's not right to live with constant fear that you know, what, what if something happens today? Now, I understand sometimes we've had traumatic experiences and we have to work through that. That's a different thing. But we can trust God. You, you are immortal until God chooses to take you home, okay? You know that nothing, nothing will happen to you unless God determines it's needful for you. We can live our lives, not foolishly, but trusting God. He puts his confidence in other things. And then what about gold? Well, massive amounts of gold and silver. In fact, silver is so common. It says, the chronicler says it was like stones. Okay. And we come to this very interesting verse. Chapter 9, verse 13. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Quite in interesting, eh? So <laughs> if, if you've been a Christian any period of time, <laughs> you know the number 666, okay? And God doesn't mess around with what he puts in his word. And scholars, let me quote an Old Testament professor, Keith Bodner, one of the most respected Old Testament professors alive. He's written a journal article for Cambridge University. He said this, this, this passage, well, let me quote Revelation to you, if you don't know about it. Revelation 13, 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I believe it's a symbolic number. It's, uh, I don't think that, there's, that the Lord is saying only if you're good at maths and certain things, then you can figure this out because that, that doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. Scripture is always about wisdom. Okay? It's, it's, it's about understanding, not your IQ level and how good you are at maths and those things. It's about being a wise person. So I think the number 666 is symbolic of, of man. It's just not seven. Uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, repetition is the way you emphasize something. We would put it in bold or maybe underline it, but it's, it's through repetition. So, and you can listen to the Revelation series on that. But uh, it's just saying this is, the, this is man. If you're going to trust in man, it will always be short. It will never be seven. 
It will never be enough. Seven is a number of completion and perfection. If you're in Christ, your number is 777. Okay? You're perfect in Christ, complete in Him. But he, this, this commentator says this. He says that John is referencing this, this verse, and it's an important notice of this king's wayward and unjust practices, his inordinate wealth, exploitation of his own people, and his stewing of God's law. And so John in Revelation is, is using the symbol of Solomon. Solomon chased after money and wealth. He was corrupt. And when you read Revelation, you see lots of the same imagery. You see sexual immorality. That's really what's going on with Solomon with a thousand, thousand wives. You see greed, economic power, all of these things. And so what it's saying to us, what the chronicler is trying to say is, he has blessing, but in the midst of that, there's problems. And that's a warning to all of us. When God blesses you, okay, there are seasons that we go through where God blesses us. And you know what we do? We, we drop our guard, don't we? We, we think, oh, it's, sure, it's going nicely now. Uh, things seem to be working. I got a promotion. Um, I have disposable income. I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, <laughs> um, you're actually like, hey, I could buy that. I, I, could, I actually have the money to do that. It's going well. My job's going well. My relationships are going well. Maybe I've just met someone and it's going well. Uh, things at church are working out, things in my family, whatever it is. And it's wonderful. That is God's kindness to us. Be extra careful in those times. Okay? I think Abraham Lincoln, he said this, the true test of a man's character is not how he deals with adversity but how he deals with success. Okay. My own experience is in those seasons, I do drop my God. We spend less time with the Lord, don't we? We think, well, I don't really have much to pray for at the moment. Uh, and we've missed what a prayer is all about, speaking to our Father, communing with, with God. If anything, be more alert. Solomon was not. David was not. We saw that in the life of David as well with Bathsheba. You see this throughout the scriptures. When there is ease, we must be very, very careful. Praise God for blessing, but be careful. When you find that hair, get rid of it. Okay? Deal with the sin. Deal with those temptations. Be extra alert. Be extra vigilant. And really what it's also telling us is Solomon's not the guy. As great as he was, as amazing as he was, he was a sinner. He was broken. Okay. Jesus is the one. He is a greater than David, a greater than Solomon, a greater than Abraham, greater than Adam, greater than Isaiah, greater than everyone. Perfect. Never ever sinned. The one who is able to truly answer all our questions and satisfy us completely and he is a good king who will look after us and not lose one of his, his citizens, one of his sheep. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, it's so rich. Even in the midst of, of lists and accounts, there are these powerful, powerful statements and powerful lessons for us to learn. We do pray you would help us, Lord. We thank you for those, those seasons of blessing, those seasons of respite. You are so kind to us, Lord. We don't deserve them. May we not abuse them. May we not become lazy and lax. Help us to be even more alert. Help us to praise you more and to draw closer to you, even in those seasons. We thank you that there is forgiveness for our sins, Lord. And thank you that you do answer the deepest questions of our heart. Lord, if there are any here who have never heard your answers, that you would, by your Spirit, speak to them. 
Reveal yourself to them, Lord. You are the greater than Solomon. May they, may they know no rest until you meet with them. Continue to be with us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. if you're able to please stand with me we're going to sing a closing hymn or praise to him